0: We decided thirty years ago two things. The first is that we are going to focus on having a great ride down the mountain, and there are many components to that. Not the least of which, by the way, is skier density. We are uh, one of the lowest dense mountains because our uphill capacity is is what it is with our double chairs. But what that means is that when you're when you're coming down that mountain, you're not crowded, and that's an important part of the experience. The other Kind of decision we made that we're going to stick to is we will change out a lift when our service levels are impacted. It's very unlikely that we'll do it for marketing reasons. You know we're not going to say oh we have a six a heated because we think that that'll be a great marketing plus. We're, we're just not going to do that. We'll do it for service where, where the the service to the guest requires that we make make the change.
1: Welcome to the storm. your host Stuart Winchester Jackson Hole may be a tough act to follow but my guest today is up to that in a huge way before we get to that go and subscribe to the free storm skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. let me repeat that it's free if you find any value in this podcast at all the least you can do is hit me with a free sub that is the heart of this whole operation I am not a podcaster with a newsletter. I am a writer with a podcast. The best part of the storm is in your inbox, if you let it be. You can also follow along on Instagram or Twitter at Storm Ski Journal for breaking news and more frequent updates. Okay, you know where we're going next, to my sponsor, Mountain Gazette. Founded in 1966, Mountain Gazette is a large format bi-annual print title celebrating mountain culture. If you're familiar with the traditional mountain gazette from a dozen or more years ago, you are gonna be shocked when you see the new format. It is an absolute monster. 16 and a half inches by 10 and three quarters inches. What has not changed is the incredible wide-ranging writing and show-stopping photography. I'll tell you what I mean. Issue 196, shipping as I speak, features a huge gallery titled The Last Days of Skiing in Afghanistan. The Mountain Gazette connected with a photographer who captured what may be the last shots of skiing before the Taliban took over. This is the most powerful piece the magazine has done to date, but the range here is huge. Another gallery you'll find in this issue is Daniel Arnold, New York's most renowned street photographer who will roll out a gallery that conveys his impressions of autumn in New York City. Do not miss this. You need to subscribe today to reserve your copy at MountainGazette.com. Enter code GOHIRE-10, all one word, for 10% off subscriptions. That's a new code now. GOHIRE-10. That will ensure that you get that story and everything else in issue 196. Use code East Coast, all one word, for 10% off everything else, including vintage magazine covers, which make great art for your home office or living room. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 63, Bill Stritzler owner of Smuggler's Notch, Vermont. What's the best ski area in Vermont? There are plenty of options. Is it Stowe, the classic? Is it Killington, the beast? Is it Sugarbush, the sprawling badass? Is it Jay, the snowfall king? Or is it MRG, the throwback? Look, there are good arguments for all of these, but... What if the answer is smuggler's notch? And why couldn't it be? Everyone loves smugs. Everyone. And why wouldn't you? A thousand acres of varied terrain. A nothing matters but the skiing and family attitude. And an owner who doesn't give a good goddamn that you want a 27-person disco lift. What's a disco lift? I have no idea, and neither the Smuggler's Notch, because the only thing this place cares about is the ride down, the skiing, and that's what we're all here for, right? Right, Storm? That's what Bill Stritzler's here for, and that's why it is my great pleasure to welcome him to the Storm. Let's go. My guest today has been the owner of Smuggler's Notch Vermont since 1996. With 1,000 acres of terrain on a 2,610-foot vertical drop, Smuggler's Notch is one of the largest ski areas in New England. The mountain receives an average of more than 300 inches of snow per season. Ski magazine readers recently ranked Smuggler's Notch as the top resort in the East and the best resort in the region for families. Prior to taking ownership of the resort, he spent nine years as his managing director. Before that, he spent 26 years working for AT&T and Wells Fargo. Bill Stritzler is my guest. Bill, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: I'm glad to do it.
1: So, Bill, you've been at Smuggler's Notch for 35 years now. Take us back here. What did Smuggler's Notch look like when you showed up in 1987, and how has it changed
0: since then? Well, in many ways, uh, it looked similar to the way it looks today. Uh, Our mountains are are the same mountains as we had then. We're very famous and proud of the fact that our lifts are the same as they were then, although we now have more lifts than we did, but they're still in the same mode as the others. Um, On the other hand, snowmaking has changed dramatically. And today we have significant uh, snowmaking facilities significant investments in snowmaking that's taken place over the years. Uh, That supports our philosophy that what's most important to our skiing public is the ride down the mountain. So we have focused on improving the ride down the mountain over these past 35 years. And then in the village, uh, we have expanded our bed base. It's uh, a little more than twice the size it was then. And we have a number of facilities that uh, speak to summer. Smuggers Notch decided to be in the summer business almost 30 years ago. We have a very mature, well-developed summer business with a number of water playgrounds to support it. We also have children's camps, not only in the winter, but in the summer. And the summer camps are new. They weren't there in 1987. So those are the kinds of things that have have changed kind of in a nutshell.
1: And... In your first years in that role of managing director, what was your set of responsibilities? What did you do at the resort?
0: Well, I was responsible for all of resort operations. Um, That essentially hasn't changed. (laughs) But the the big change is that I had a boss. Right. And uh, the boss lived in Boston, so he was kind of a remote boss. And when ultimately I bought the resort, the big change for me was I no longer had a boss. So what I used to tell people is, you know, now that I own the resort, uh, I can't get fired. I can go broke, but I can't get fired.
1: <laughs> Not a bad trade-off. So you had an interesting career, as I said, 24 years in the corporate world prior to coming up and working at Smugs. What made you leave that corporate life behind and start a new career in northern Vermont?
0: Well, I left AT&T. I had a great job at AT&T, even though I was kind of an outsider because I was hired what they called a the midlife hire when AT&T had decided they had to become a competitive enterprise rather than the historical monopoly. And ultimately, um, I grew in the organization so that when I left, I was reporting to the president of AT&T. And I concluded along the way that I really... Uh, even even if I thought I could ever become president, that I really didn't want that job. But the specific job I had at the time was finding new ventures for AT and and working with young people uh, who were entrepreneurially bent and starting new businesses. And I had done that for a couple of years, and I thought, I- I'm not the one having fun here. They're having all the fun. <laughs> all I'm doing is, you know, providing the funding. Not the fun. So I thought, well, uh, the owner of Smugglers had approached me. I had gotten to know him uh, quite well over the years. And he approached me and said, essentially, he said, why don't you stop complaining about that place and go up and run it? So I went in to see my, my boss at at and Jim Olson, who was the president. He said, well, wait a minute, before you do that, We have a job for you representing AT&T in a new venture um, in the Republic of Korea. Wow. And it was the gold star company, a big manufacturing company. So I went home and I said to my wife, Iola, well, we got two opportunities. We can go to Vermont, to smugglers, and I can become the managing director or we got this fantastic opportunity in the Republic of Korea. And Viola said, you go to Korea if you want. I'm going to Vermont. <laughs> <laughs> so we came to Vermont.
1: <laughs> happy wife, happy life, right, Bill? Yeah, yeah.
0: But the other, the other issue was that, at least in the days when I was considering coming to work here, corporate America had a single focus, and that was on uh, shareholder wealth. And that was fine, but they had forgotten about employees. They'd forgotten about the public and, and had even to some extent forgotten about the importance of their customers, the bigger companies. And I thought, you know, you can run a business successfully with the focus on those other elements and the financial side will take care of itself.
1: It, that's so interesting, Bill. There's so many echoes there of the way that you've crafted the public image of smugglers notch over the past 35 years, because it's all those things you just said. It's, it, it, it's connected to its employees. It's connected to, to its, uh, its customers because smugglers, like you said, you don't have the fancy lifts, the infrastructure, but people love that place. So talk a little bit about how that frustration with the corporate world may have translated into how you decided to steer smugglers over these past several decades.
0: Well, exactly as you said, Um, I was frustrated with it, I was convinced that there was a better way to run a business. Um, I thought because of the size of smugglers, it was possible to run it in the way that that uh, I thought was the the best way to run it, that we could really be very high touch, we could touch our customers, we could touch the employees, Uh, we could behave in a way that was competitively responsible. And by applying those same kinds of concepts, and we also developed a couple of very simple ways that we explain what we believe in. Uh, One important new concept that we uh, developed 35 years ago, we still use it today. It's called, uh, we want you back. So we wear, we wear the words, we want you back on our sweaters and it's on our posters and it's a very simple way to train in a business that has a relatively high seasonal turnover of employees. And all we say is treat the customers in a way that will cause them to want to come back and see you personally. And if you go about your job that way, then we'll have a successful business because then the customers, we really know how much we care. And the second concept we say to the employees, the concept of respect and inspect. If you work at Smugglers, you should expect to be respected and you should expect that we will inspect you, but, but always from the perspective of our clients. So all of our inspection comes from the opinion of the people who we're here to serve. So respect, inspect and Uh, we want you back those two simple concepts have driven what you and i are now talking about kind of the culture that we wanted to develop at smugglers
1: you know what makes this so remarkable bill is the first thing everyone always says about smugglers besides they love the place is that it's a pain in the butt to get to but nonetheless what you're doing has really resonated with a a particular demographic that will usually go with the path of least resistance, and that's families. And you focused a lot on making a great experience for families. A lot of that I think has to do with the village. A lot of it is your terrain. But but talk about how deliberate this uh, reputation is, and, and how how much you focused on families as this core part of your skier base over as you've as you've grown out Smugs.
0: Yeah, we we're often asked that question because it's considered to be really smart. You know, you guys, you're way ahead of the curve on uh, addressing the family market. But here's the truth: uh, shortly after I got here, we pulled the management team together and we said, "Well, what's what direction are we going to take?" And we spent a considerable amount of time trying to figure that out. And we kept naming directions and we kept eliminating them except that we didn't ever get to eliminate family. So it wasn't some brilliant idea. It was through a process (laughs) of elimination that we said, hey, it looks like that's the only thing we can do. It looks like the only thing we know how to do. And it was also uh, decided that we would go in that direction because we didn't see any other resorts that were focused on family. They all had components of family, but nobody could stand up and say, that's our focus. That's how we're going to train people. That's how we're going to recruit. That's how we're going to design our systems. That's how we're going to design our programs. That's how we're going to advertise. That that will be smugglers. We're going to do everything for family and we understand that some things will go by the wayside that might otherwise have worked. But that's what we're going to do. And we've never, we've really never deviated from that.
1: So, so help us understand this, because I, I try to explain it to people. And, and I think it's, it's hard to understand until you've been there. As a family, when you step onto Smuggler's Notch and you're on that property and you come up there for a ski trip, what sets that experience apart from if you go to another ski area? What have you done to make this such a great experience?
0: Well, there are a number of things. Um, one of the other concepts that we have implemented at Smugglers, we call guest of one. What guest of one means is that we don't, group our, we don't have groupings of our guests. We treat each guest as an individual with the assumption they have individual needs. And that goes down to the, uh, our child care center and a two-year-old in the child care center you know, through the grandparents who are here. So if you take the attitude, and it shows, and people sense it, if your attitude is you're not part of a crowd of Smugglers, that you are an individual, you're going to be treated like an individual, you're going to be cared for as an individual, each member of your family is going to be cared for that way, that's a whole different way of experiencing a resort than being considered, you know, a part of a market or a part of a crowd. And That's very important to the feeling that our guests have when they're here.
1: So you have this really strongly articulated philosophy that has worked for you for a very, very long time. Uh, At what point, Bill, did the opportunity come up to buy the resort?
0: And what made you decide to go for it? Uh, My boss at the time had decided that he wanted to sell the resort. As a matter of fact, When he hired me, he said, look, Bill, go up there, fix it up. In five years, we'll we'll sell it, and we'll ride off into the sunset. (laughs) So the the time had come when he wanted to start uh, showing the resort to possible buyers. And there were two or three. And you had to kind of understand my boss, Stanley Snyder, um, very much an individual, very much an entrepreneur. So... One uh, weekend, it was uh, actually Martin Luther King. He said to me, you know, Bill, I I don't like any of these guys that are thinking about buying the resort. (laughs) He said, they got plenty of money they could buy, but I don't like them. I don't want them to own smugglers. Why don't you buy it? (laughs) So I said, oh, well, okay. (laughs) I'll give that some thought. I was going away for the weekend with uh, a buddy and his wife and my wife. And so I said to them over breakfast, you know, Stanley thinks I should buy the resort. What, what do you guys think? And I said, you know, I have a big advantage. I understand it. I know the people. I know a lot about the business. I've been here for a while. And uh, my wife, God bless her, she said, go ahead, but keep your hands off my money. <laughs> 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 I said, well, "That's fair." Uh, and so I said to Stan, "Okay, but you need you need to take the other guys off the table. I'm not going to try to figure out how to buy this resort if the other guys are sitting around ready to swoop in at any time. You have to take them off the table, and you got to give me nine months." Well, so it ended up he did. He, he took the other guys off the table. I ended up needing ten months but that all worked out. We had a very unique arrangement for the purchase of smugglers. To this day, others who were involved say it was unique. We did not have a letter of agreement. We did not have a purchase and sale agreement because we knew each other real well. And we decided that if we allowed accountants and attorneys to get involved, that we'd never get the deal done. Okay. And we spent our whole time negotiating those documents. So instead He named the price. He said, you show up with the cash in one hand, and I'll show up with all the deeds in the other, and we'll do it. And and throughout that nine months, although our advisors all said, you guys are crazy. You got to have it all documented. We said, nope, we're not going to do that. We got a deal. And that's what happened.
1: That's beautiful. Could that happen today, Bill? If if you look at the way that you bought smugs, and if you go... Uh, down the road a little and you look at the way that Winsmith bought Sugarbush g- will we ever see individuals buying these big ski resorts again smugglers is the last large independent well it's the largest remaining independent resort in yeah. New England and it seems though as though the the large companies have the resources to bid the prices up out of the realm of most so so this sort of story of of you know a really passionate person making a deal for a resort they love and care about, and taking singular ownership. Do you you think we'll see that again?
0: Well, I don't mean this facetiously. It depends upon whether they listen to their advisors or not.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: See, all of my advisors said, do not do this. (laughs) And the more they said not to do it, of course, the more I became determined to do (laughs) it. So if if you don't have the passion to decide that you can go forward, uh, understanding the difficulties, uh, then it won't happen. But I can't say that there isn't somebody still who has that kind of passion, has the uh, the wherewithal to pull together a deal, and, and that it can still happen. I think I'd be surprised if it does, but I don't think it's impossible. It's so dependent upon the you know, kind of the psychology of the individuals.
1: Yeah, I'm very interested to see who ends up with Jay Peak.
0: Yeah. We don't know. You know, there's a lot of speculation and there is a lot of rumor. Mm-hmm. But does anybody really know? Uh, no. Do you know what <laughs>
1: No, no, I, I bet Steve Wright knows, um, but I, I don't think anyone else does. Um, so well, I'm
0: not sure. Well, he knows who might end up with it. I'm right. not sure he knows who's going to end up
1: with it. Right, right, that's right. But he knows who's bidding on it. Um, I know uh, Stephen Kircher told me Boyne is not bidding on it, and that's that's as much as I know right now, Bill. <laughs> so yeah, I
0: guess Boyne dropped out, and you know we hear we hear all, if all the people who looked at it and dropped out are true, nobody's available to buy it. <laughs> So, so
1: so sitting in your seat, Bill, 25 years later, uh, ignoring all the advisors who told you you're crazy, was it the right decision to buy Smuggler's Notch?
0: Oh, yeah. I, I've never looked back. Literally never looked back. Even today, I don't look back. I'm just looking ahead. And it's been a hell of a ride and a wonderful ride. And, well, you know, I mean, you absolutely know how it is. The reason it's been a great ride is because the people surrounding me here, you know, we just, believe it or not, we do believe in having fun. And I drive up that mountain road every morning and I say to myself, I wonder what's going to happen today. (laughs) How many jobs can you have? How many businesses can you own with that kind of excitement every day? And I haven't had a day, I can honestly say I've not had one day of regret.
1: That's incredible. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting how much the landscape has changed around you, Bill, since you bought Smuggler's Notch in the mid-90s. And a couple of years ago, Ski Magazine published a story speculating that Vail wanted to buy Smuggler's Notch and combine it with Stowe. Vale, of course, purchased Stowe in 2017. And we've also seen Altera buy Stratton and, and Sugarbush and all sorts of consolidation happen across New England. Has Vail ever approached you with an offer to buy the resort?
0: You know, you're right, we're surrounded. So let <laughs> me right. let me answer your question honestly in this way. Um, when I came to work as Smugglers, uh, Stanley Snyder was the owner, and Hank Greenberg was in charge of the stove. You know, it was a little small component of the AIG company. And... Stanley, at least twice a year, would call up Hank and say, let's talk about putting these two places together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the years went by and nothing happened, of course. And then um, Gary Kadash came along and he was running Stowe and he'd call me up and say, say, Bill, why don't we talk about doing something together? You know, something on a permanent basis. Of course, nothing ever happens. And then Hank Greenberg. And that was the same thing just calling up and saying, well, well, let's talk about it. And then, you know, for a while we did have the uh, relationship to interconnect uh, across the top of Sterling. Um, and that those trails, we still have a license to use those trails. So people could go back and forth, although we don't groom them and we don't patrol them. So they're pretty much not, not used by the general public. So every year that I've been here, I've been told that, we're going to be purchased by Vail. And I keep, my answer is always the same. Well, let me, you know, let me know if, if that actually comes to pass, would you? Because it seems like the whole public knows about it, but I don't know about it. So we, uh, I, I can't say that we don't talk to those guys. They're right across the mountain. But do we have anything, you know, any kind of a deal in front of us? No, we don't.
1: From your point of view, how has Stowe changed for better or worse since Vale bought them?
0: Um, I can answer it in this way. Uh, I work out uh, at a at a facility uh, in Stowe called the Swimming Hole,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and, and I, you know, I get changed in the men's room after my workout in the men's locker room, and a whole bunch of other men are in there, and they're talking. They have no idea who I am. I'm from this side of the mountain. Right. And I hear them talking about, they're all their athletes and they're talking about uh, their experience at still. And here are the two things that they say, which should be a lot more reliable than what I might say. Mm-hmm. First, they say the the Epic Pass is a great deal. They love it. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay.
0: It gives them a the, the tremendous amount of flexibility they didn't have before. The, the price is right. Uh, some of them buy multiple a uh, passes, you know, an epic pass, an icon, and a smuggler's now because he can add them up and pay about the same he used to pay for the season right. pass. So they love that. But the other thing they say, and you know, they're competitors, but I don't mind telling you this: they say that those guys know how to run a mountain. Really? That Bobby Murphy has done a great job, and he knows how to run a mountain. And the and the Vale Corporation knows how to run mountains. Those are the two things I hear. So, you know, I've been working out there for a long time, and I did not hear those things under the prior management.
1: That's really interesting. I I, I want to go back to that interconnect for a moment. Was that at one time a formal ski-between interconnect?
0: Well, there are formal trails called snuffies, and they were formal, and we groomed them. And maybe patrolled, I can't tell you for sure, I remember. It pre- but they were groomed. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, 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 one night, the groomer groomer from Stowe, you had to go across Sterling Pond as a part of the, the trip back and forth. And the groomer from Stowe went into the pond. Oh. And at that moment, the grooming ended for good. Okay because we don't own the pond. The pond is owned by the state and they didn't, and frankly, appropriately, they didn't want that pristine mountaintop pond polluted with the oil and gas of a groomer. Gosh,
1: how deep is that pond?
0: You know what? I'm not sure. We, um, we deliver fish to it every year. Okay. So it's a popular place for people to hike to and, and fish. But, um, and people are up there float tubing. I don't see people waiting, so it's it's deep enough, so you need a float tube if you're going to go out into the pond.
1: Was the driver okay?
0: Yeah, the driver was. Everyone was fine, uh, I mean, but it was uh, it was unfortunate. Is
1: the groomer still in the pond, or did they get it out? No, it? no. <laughs>
0: they got somebody up there, and they <laughs> they. Uh, we got the groomer out. The, 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 there was a joke, not very funny, actually, but they said that they had a big catfish.
1: Okay. <laughs> so can people still ski between if they have both passes? Sure.
0: Yeah, they do every year. We have people who go, oh, multiple passes. Yeah, they can sure. do that. But we have people who travel back and forth. They can have a pass in both places. Uh, there was a time we had a single, we had a single ride. Where you could, uh, you could ski down to Smugglers from the Stowe side, and you get one ride back up.
1: Are they out of luck now, or
0: <laughs> they're not really out of luck because everybody knows the the lifties.
1: Yeah, do you get people who are confused coming over from Stowe and just say, "Where, where the heck am I?"
0: <laughs> Maybe once in a while, but <laughs> I, I don't hear about it very much now.
1: So. As I said earlier, Smuggler's Notch is the largest remaining independent ski area in the Northeast. And as the rest of these get bought up, and and, and as we said, we'll see who buys Jay, um, but do you, how important is it, or do you think it's important to continue to have these large independent ski areas like Smuggler's Notch as a counterweight?
0: Yeah, we. it's hard for me to think of Smuggler's or the independents in terms of a counterweight because... It's really not in our uh, thought process. We we don't think of being a counterweight by any means. You know, we think of we've got a nice niche carved out. Uh, We're fortunate that we've got good seasonal business, summer and winter, and a good fall. Um, We have a long, you know, list of customers over a long period of time. So we very much we, we focus on what we want to do, what, where we want to go, what kinds of services and facilities that we want to have available for the family market in particular. And we don't we don't really think much about what the what our impact will be on the on others because, you know, frankly, we're not of a size that's going to impact them. So you know, I've never thought of us as a counterweight, and probably wouldn't.
1: Yeah, I, I guess the way that I that I think about it is, you have Veil, for example, dropping the price of Epic passes to these extremely low levels, and and that uh, in turn can bring crowds. And you have an alternate model where you have something like a Smuggler's Notch uh, that just has a different philosophy, a different way of running things, and and that can help to stave off this rush for everyone to consolidate if you have a different model like smugglers? I guess that's the way I think about it.
0: Yeah. Well, that's a good, I think that's an intelligent way to think about it. Um, What we know, and over time we're thinking that this is really coming to pass, is that the, the Epic Pass and, and the Icon are actually attracting new people to the industry. And that is that is a good deal for us. Uh, if that product attracts more and more skiers and riders, uh, we'll, we'll, we will get our share of, of that attraction. We're not finding that we're losing uh, Market to them, um, you know our markets like everyone else. You're hearing about. I mean, we had a tremendous season pass sale uh, this year, and uh, last winter, you know, the Vermonters came. The out of stateers couldn't come, but the Vermonters came in in large numbers. Um, so we haven't had much visible impact, and I. I'm thinking we probably didn't have much visible impact on uh, on those big guys either. So we've got this kind of coexistence that's going on. Now, a, a good question would be, well, how long can that last? You know, what's it going to be like five years from now, Bill? I mean, we don't really know the answer to that. But so because we don't we don't tend to. Uh, we don't tend to think in those terms. We tend to think in terms of just getting you know, focused on this nice market we've decided upon to run our business for that purpose and kind of let the chips fall where they may otherwise. <laughs>
1: It seems like Smugglers has really focused on keeping skiing affordable. And I just want to talk about your season pass here for a minute. So the early bird price was $589 for this coming season. That's a really good deal for a mountain of that size. Just talk about your philosophy around season passes and keeping those at an affordable rate.
0: Uh, It is absolutely a philosophy. We believe that affordability is uh, has been in the past, at any rate, a way to differentiate uh, smugglers from others. And that's a philosophy that we're going to be sticking with, you know, as we look to the future. That th- this sport, as you well know, can be a pretty expensive sport. Yeah. Uh, and that could be a barrier to entry. So we, we've always believed and have executed the plan that makes sure that our mountains are affordable. And that attracts, you know, that attracts a very interesting uh, segment of the family population uh, that we're, we're pleased to have. Now, our affordability is being challenged because the big guys are now pretty darned affordable. So we, uh, you know, we're still we were okay. We we didn't know, uh, nobody knew what the effect would be in our business when those prices were lowered. Mm-hmm. So we were, you know, we were frankly a little surprised when our business volumes increased. <laughs> figure that out. You know what that means, of course. It means, yeah. I know, yeah, you know what it means. Yeah. <laughs> it means that price is not the issue. Right. <laughs> people don't make decisions on where they're going to go based on price. Yeah.
1: You know, one of the interesting dynamics to this bill is, is go back 10 years and you were pricing season passes against Stowe, right? That was your competitor. Cause they're right there. Yeah. Now you're pricing season passes against Stowe and Vail's entire empire because the Stowe season pass, which was $783, 583 for the local version of the Black South holidays includes access to all of Vail's mountains, City Whistler Vale Beaver Creek all of those all across the country and and some in Europe and elsewhere as well so what kind of pressure does that put on you to 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 think about joining one of these multi-pass coalitions as a partner like say an indie pass or or, or maybe even the icon pass as, as one of these added day folks is this something you've considered do you feel any pressure to do that
0: well, we get, I get a lot of pressure internally,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, from those who believe that that would be a smart thing for us to do. But there are just as many uh, smugglers, marketing people and operating people, and including me, who have this notion at any rate that not joining is a positive for us, that Differentiating ourselves by uh, by not joining those larger groups has kind of a cachet that uh, our publics, at least so far, seem to like. They like the idea of independence, and as soon as you link up with anybody else, then it's just a little less uh, independence. So we, you know, we have we've certainly thought hard about. Uh, what it would be, whether it would be wise or not to become you know one of the dots on the map.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: and we uh, we so far think that we have an advantage by not doing that. So it's I can't tell you we're not going to do it next year or five years from now. But right now, there's this um, th- there's this sense that we have as we talk to our guests and customers. That they like the idea of 100% independence, so we're we're going to stick with that. Uh, we're going to stick with that for now.
1: Well, one of the advantages of independence is you really can do whatever you want. And, and one of the other ways that you make skiing affordable, and I really like this program, is the Bash Badge program. This is a terrific deal. Pay 139 up front for your Bash card or whatever it is, and then each lift ticket any day all season long is $30. Talk about that program and how important that is to your locals and to you to keep, keep your ski
0: area affordable. Very important. And it's a great, it's a great product, by the way, to encourage midweek skiing. And, you know, we're all trying to crack that, that nut. And what's interesting to me as a, you know, guy spent a lot of my time in marketing that the, the market actually has a calculator in their brains, not individuals, but the market in total. So we find that they will that the bash badge holders will ski or ride almost, not exactly almost the correct number of days to make it a good financial decision versus buying the day ticket.
1: Hmm.
0: So you know, somewhere between three and a half and four and a half times. If you just do the math, the market now. Individuals, some will not ski at all, and others will ski, you know, twenty times. But the, the that market in total acts very rationally. So what does that mean? It means that we have an opportunity to price correctly. Now we we know the relationship. As long as you know the relationship between the bash badge utilization and the season pass and day market utilization, you can you can use that information to always. And we do this. So always give the skier and rider a little advantage uh, by selecting that product. So that's why it's important.
1: It's such an interesting product because it it gives you a stepping stone between the walk-up day ticket price and the big outlay for the season pass. It, you for got someone it. Who thinks oh, you know? Idea. I might. Yeah, I might go four or five times, but I'm not quite ready to, to lay down six hundred bucks. Yeah, you got it. And, and I just wonder why more ski areas don't do that. I, there's a few. Uh, Orta with Whiteface Gore and Bel Air has a really nice one. Um, there's a few other ski areas in the Northeast, but but that's a tremendous program. I really like it. Um, really want to get your thoughts here, Bill, on on the price, the walk-up price of peak day tickets. And I, I did a little research here. And in the, if you go back five years, which was the last year that Stowe was not owned by Vale. The peak walk-up price at Killington was $105. The peak walk-up price at Sugarbush was $97. And now this year, the peak walk-up price at Killington is $184. So that's up about 80%. And Sugarbush has almost doubled from 97 to 185 Meanwhile, Smuggler's Notch was $72, 2016-17 season. Uh, my research indicates that your top ticket price will be $94 this year. So, You've jumped up 22 bucks while your competitors have nearly doubled and were already more expensive. Why are we seeing this massive inflation
0: in in the walk-up lift ticket market, Bill? Um, It's my understanding, and I have no inside information about this, that the the purpose of the walk-up, as you call it, market, is to encourage people to buy the season pass, to encourage them to buy the epic. So they make that calculation just as our bash badge holders do. They say, okay. I'm gonna go out to Vail and I'm gonna ski six days and it's gonna cost me 1200 bucks, $200 a day, or I only have to ski three days and own their Epic Pass. And so Vail and Aspen and Powder and Boing—they they all want you to own that long-term commitment pass. Because it's, the data will show that the season pass holders are more likely to be what we would call a return yes than other uh, kinds of ticket holders. So if you're looking at your, your financials over a period of time, you do everything you can to attract somebody into your season pass because they're going to be the repeat customers. And that's the way you measure. You measure the profitability of a customer over time. So that's what they're doing. They're saying, you know, we can really attract people to our season pass, not only because of the wonderful opportunities to ski in a wide variety of places around the world, but because it really makes sense financially for anybody who's going to ski three or four times versus going up to the window. So it's part of a strategy and overall. My uh, this is me looking at it from the outside in. Okay. I have no insight, <laughs> I have no inside information. It's just that's what makes sense to me.
1: And why haven't you followed that model?
0: Well, uh, in a sense, you know, the Bash Badge does follow it in a way that we um, and we have loyal Bash Badge holders. And the same for the season pass. Uh, we have a significant percentage of our season pass. Holders have been season pass holders for a long time. And what they have found is that they are better off financially than walking up to the window. But that's the old ratio thing. So you mentioned our season pass uh, dollars to be spent versus the walk up. That ratio is probably a not. I haven't looked at it, but my guess is it's not a lot different than the ratios that you would find with the the walk up. Price at Vale or Aspen, and their season passes probably the same number of visits.
1: Yeah, so the the, the peak tickets are even worse out west. I, I wrote a story over the weekend. Steamboat's peak walk-up day ticket is two hundred and sixty-nine dollars this year. Two sixty-nine. Yeah. for what Well, day? family
0: family of four is a thousand bucks.
1: Yeah. So, so you know, I, I get the strategy. And, and sure, it makes sense. They, they want you to buy an icon pass. Um, but by the time those, fam- the icon pass goes off sale in, in early December, right? So by the time that family gets off the plane from California at Steamboat Springs and walks up to the ticket window and sees it's going to cost them $5,000 to ski for the week, they're pretty bummed out about that, even if they can pay it. Do you think that these high ticket prices, do you think the skiers are making a mistake here by alienating these walk up customers?
0: Oh well, it's hard for me to put myself in their shoes. Yeah, um, I think I think that they're smart guys and gals, and they think things through. They understand their markets very well. They understand the expected behavior of uh, their pricing, and they take all that into consideration, and they'll make a make a judgment now. Places like Steamboat, there may be that they are so much in demand that that in part drives the pricing. But again, it's the trade-off. Everybody wants to build that lifetime customer. And we know that you don't build a lifetime customer with the day, what we call the day market or the walk-up. So if you price that out of sight, uh, and, and I think it's pretty well known, by the way, now, that if you're going to buy a season pass at any one of the big guys, you better do it early. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you certainly, there's not much excuse for being surprised when you walk up to the window at Steamboat because it means that you don't know how to use any of the website information. And, you know, skiers are more sophisticated than that.
1: Yep, it'll be interesting to see how it continues to evolve. All right, let's talk about the mountain. You, you mentioned your lift system. It is probably the oldest overall lift fleet of any major mountain in the country. The newest lift is 40 years old and Madonna is approaching 60. Uh, do you have any plans to upgrade any parts of it
0: or are you pretty happy with this lift system overall? Well, we are, uh, you know, we constantly, I mean, constantly are reviewing the, our lift system for safety. So, you know, for all of us, that's the number one criteria, and we know uh, because of the the outside work that we have to, that we hire uh, sources who are experts in lifts to come in and examine our lifts, plus all the state inspections and all the insurance company inspections. So we know our lifts are safe. That's the first thing. Um, just as importantly, though, we decided. 30 years ago, two things that play into the answer to your question. The first is that we are going to focus on having a great ride down the mountain. Our investment is going to go into everything that we can do to make sure the ride down the mountain is a great ride. And there are many components to that, not the least of which, by the way, is skier density. Mm-hmm. We are uh, one of the lowest dense mountains, if you do the numbers, because our uphill capacity is is what it is with our double chairs. But what that means is that when you're when you're coming down that mountain, you're not crowded. And that's an important part of the experience. Um, so that's important. Uh, the other the other kind of decision we made that we're going to stick to is we will change out a lift when our service levels are impacted
1: hmm.
0: it's very unlikely that we'll do it for marketing reasons you know we're not going to say oh we have a six a heated seat six seater new lift because we think that that'll be a great marketing plus we're we're just not going to do that we'll do it for service where where the the service to the guest requires that we make the uh, make the change but the next item that people don't really understand is what's under the covers. Uh, the, the, the towers may be 30 years old, but that's about the only thing that's 30 years old. You know, the gearboxes and the motors and the cables, they, they're all replaced on a regular uh, basis over that 30 years period. So if you look under the covers, there's not a 30-year-old lift in its operations, other than the towers. And uh, oh, and probably a good deal of the chairs, but the mechanical side of the lift is is really, I hate to use the expression because people will look at me funny, but the, the, the mechanical side is really up to date.
1: That whole fleet is the Hall brand, and that company was acquired quite a while ago. Those are famously reliable lifts, and, and everyone who has them seems to love how they run. Uh, but, but do you have any trouble finding parts to keep those running, or, or are those available?
0: Um, they're either available or we manufacture them. Oh, really? We're, here we are in northern Vermont. We have a lot of tradespeople, people who are really good with iron, and if there's something that we need... Uh, we we know who to go to to have it uh, have it fabricated. Now we do have one hell of a spare parts inventory,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and uh, and that of course, and, and it's designed and aimed at the components of the lift that we think are most susceptible to needing replacement. But as I said, you know things like the, the gearbox, very important part. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know we. We can order, you can order the gearboxes for those lifts and, and uh, replace them whenever you think the time has come to do it. So we're not running into parts uh, shortages so far.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I was out at Summit at Snoqualmie out there in Washington this past summer, and I was talking to the general manager there, Guy Lawrence, and he said they have a ton of riblet lifts. I don't know if you've been to that ski area, but it's on a broad ridge and they have all these old riblets. And he said, when riblet went out of business, we bought all their machining equipment and we run a Riblet machine shop right here on the mountain. So we we can fix our own and we can fix everybody else's too.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's (laughs) the idea.
1: So it's, there's another element to this bill and it's an atmospheric element and it sort of goes counter to this prevailing mentality of faster lifts are always better. I kind of think that in a way, a slow lift can enrich the ski experience. It's, it's really a pleasure to be on these machines that have run over decades and have this connection back to this classic Vermont skiing. But what is, what is the atmospheric element to you, or, or is there one that you see in, in maintaining these old lifts and keeping some aspects of the old, old Vermont in place?
0: Well, an interesting question. Uh, we certainly get that kind of feedback. Uh, from our guests. There's no doubt that there's a segment of smugglers, guests who would prefer that we had high-speed lifts. That would be silly to deny that, but they're far from in the majority. So let me give you one specific example that's brought up to me all the time, and that's on Madonna. The local skiers particularly say, Bill, do not put a high-speed lift on Madonna. Do not put the high-speed quad up there because you're going to have to redo the trails. You know the current trail system, you're going to be skiing here in january. you'll you'll be up there, you'll know what we mean. that our our Madonna trail system, which people love, would have to be significantly changed if we put a high speed quad on Madonna. So you know the the there's the practical side of making the kind of change that you're you're talking about. The other thing is that if you are focused on children, as we are with families, but really heavy focus on children, uh, the kids don't seem to mind. Mm -hmm. That's right. And the the concept we started out this discussion is one that still is very important to us, and that's concentrating on the ride down the mountain. Make sure that trail system is in great shape. Make sure we have wonderful grooming, top-notch. Hi, we've invested a lot of money in snowmaking, uh, so keep that ride down the mountain. That's where the dollars, our dollars, should go, and uh, take care of the uphill ride. If we start to have service problems,
1: so it, you you say you won't replace the lifts unless basically they they need to go to the scrapyard, right? So if you look at a lift like Madonna, it opened in 1963. It, what would you replace that with? Would you just look to get another? fixed grip double or, or would you look at it at the time and see what made
0: sense? You mean replace it uh,
1: like if it had a Yeah. If it had a mechanical failure and it just couldn't be salvaged.
0: Wow. Um, well, I know the first thing I would do, I would call the the uh, gentleman who was president of Smuggers, now retired,
1: mm-hmm.
0: who was famous for being able to buy, thing, buy lifts and things. hmm kind that we're looking for, I'd call up Bob and I'd say, Bob, go find me a new lift from <laughs> Some Somewhere out there, there is one. But we, we've looked at uh, some things that may sound crazy. We've looked at detachable doubles. Oh, wow. Um, which is technologically possible, mm. but not, you know, the economics of it aren't great. Right. Um, we've looked at We've looked at other possibilities, but we're not feeling pressure to do it because the lifts are safe and they uh, run well. And we made a number of years ago, we made one big change that made our Madonna lift a lot more reliable. We lowered the profile of the lift uh, so it had a lot less wind exposure. So we made that investment because that was a service issue. I kind of think we're okay for now. Uh,
1: Fun fact for the listeners here, Bill. Madonna is the longest haul double in the world. And it it rises 2,150 vertical feet. It's 6,700 feet long. And Sterling is the second longest at 5,700 feet with a 1,500 foot vertical rise. And I I confirmed those with LiftBlog, which is just just a terrific site that tracks all the lifts throughout the United States and Canada. Uh, But my question for you around that fun fact, Bill, is... Is there some pride in owning these machines and keeping
0: them running so long? Oh, sure. Yeah. Our mechanical team takes a lot of pride in it. Um, We had, or even our marketing people, if you catch them in a weak moment, they'll say, yeah, we we have found a way to really make those lifts attractive. We ran a fascinating, um, I'm sorry, I don't easily have a copy that I can send you but we, we ran a fascinating set of interviews that we published uh, and our, our guests giving their opinion of the lifts and what they liked about them, what they didn't. And, you know, we got funny things like uh, one, one guest said, yeah, my dad taught me how to spell Mississippi on your lifts. <laughs> <laughs> so you get you get that kind of thing. But I guess one of my favorite stories, is you know we have a lot of homeowners here
1: mm-hmm.
0: so I had a homeowner come up to me a few years ago a young lady probably in her late teens maybe early 20s and she said bill i hear a rumor that you're going to replace your lifts with high-speed lifts particularly on madonna and i said no i i don't know where you got that i that, we don't have any plans she said oh thank god she said You ever try to get a date on a high-speed quad? (laughs) That's wonderful.
1: (laughs) I I think, uh, you know, another advantage to having a lift system that I'm sure is long paid off is, you know, new lifts are nice, but they're very expensive. And if we go back to this, these ticket prices that we were talking about earlier, how much does not having these massive infrastructure spends help you to keep this mountain affordable?
0: Very much so. Yeah, it's a very good point. Um, there, you, I'm sure that you realize there's a big difference in your economics if you can use all equity to put in a $5 million list versus having to borrow the money to do it. Sure. And if you have the equity to be able to do it, then the question, the internal question becomes, what's the best way to spend it? Is it best spent on a lift? Or is it best spent on something else that is consistent with your focus on families and market? So we've made that trade-off. It's not that we haven't invested, because we have. But we have uh, chosen to invest in the areas that we think will have the highest payback. And by not spending a lot of capital on the lifts, We don't have the debt that can come along with it. And that's what keeps our ticket prices down, not having the debt.
1: So let's talk about where you have invested. You mentioned earlier that you have really focused on bringing the snowmaking system up to modern standards. So talk about the snowmaking system at Smugs and just how much you've put into it and how that system continues to evolve.
0: Well, every year we make additional investments, but the single largest investment we made is we, we built a pipeline from our mountains down to the Lamoille River, which is more than five miles away. And that river, uh, we, we had permitted to withdraw water at what they call de minimis levels, meaning that we can, we can withdraw water all day, every day during the season. And that was a huge uh, investment and a huge project. So a five mile pipeline down to the water source, as all the other people you talk to in the industry will tell you, that is the key component for all snowmaking systems is to have a large water source. That's the starting point. Then after that, of course, as you know, the the new snow guns are terrific where Almost converted our entire fleet of snow guns to the new high efficiency guns, which also lay down a, a very nice, a much nicer sur- surface uh, to ski on. So today uh, we're about hundred uh, percent snow making on our beginner terrain, uh, about eighty percent on intermediate, and down around fifty-five or sixty percent on expert. So the question is, you know, how much more are we going to do in terms of terrain and probably not a lot on existing terrain, but we we are uh, fortunate. We have a fair amount of undeveloped terrain and we have enough uh, permits, snowmaking permits to make all the snow we want on the undeveloped terrain, as well as the existing terrain. So our investment in uh, snowmaking has been you know, significant and practical and uh, the way, kind of the smugglers way of doing things.
1: Yeah, smugglers is is very fortunate that it has a position on the spine there and gets that 300 inches of snow every year. So you can get away with not making snow on certain parts of the mountain in a way that most of the northeast cannot. Uh, but your neighbors down the spine, many of them have particular areas that they don't make snow. So Sugarbush, for example, does not make snow on Castle Rock. Mad River Glen will not make snow above 2,300 feet. When you talk about that Black Diamond terrain, Bill, uh, that, that 50 or whatever percent of it, that you don't make snow on it, is that deliberate so that your skiers can have that natural snow experience or, or, there, or is it something else?
0: Sure. Um, what I'm about to say has some controversy in it, but only because I haven't experienced it myself, but I get the input from from talking to our guests. Uh, there is a segment of our population that definitely wants natural, what they call the, you know, the natural experience. They don't want grooming and they don't want snowmaking. And they're afraid that if you have a double black diamond and you start making snow on it and grooming it, it'll become a single black. And they want to be able to ski on the double blacks. Now, you can, it's okay to kind of do it because the percentage of the skiing public uh, public that is capable of skiing on a triple black is pretty small. And so you can cater to that very small population uh, by allowing the you know the natural the natural terrain to uh, to be the to be the way that the uh, the skiers use that particular portion of the mountain. now the the disadvantage, and it's a psychological disadvantage, is you know we everyone likes to be a hundred percent open, but if you've got that really steep, tough terrain, then depending upon natural, everyone else is saying we're hundred percent open, and we're saying we got seventy six out of seventy nine <laughs> trails open. So there's a little psychological conflict, right. <laughs> but uh, we can we can put up with that.
1: I think part of the reason why you can get away with that as well. It's just the sheer size of Smuggler's Notch. It, it, it's just a really sprawling mountain. And I want to talk a little bit about the trail network here and how it's evolved. But first, Bill, just for those who may be listening and, and who are not familiar with smugs, can you just talk about the almost perfect terrain division between your three mountains? And this really might be one of the best setups in the East because you have you have Morse with green, you have Sterling with blue, you have Madonna with black. And, and it's just such a beautiful...
0: Uh, way that it all blends and works together as you can imagine it's purposeful and in in many ways it gets back to our commitment to families morse is a great belt for families it's a great teaching mountain uh we a number of years ago we expanded it into an area we call the morse highlands which has got a separate lift and a little base lodge and it's kind of a level for let's say when the kids are graduating from two and three, it's it's right on the side of Morse Mountain, so it was focus. We did that to focus on families, and it's become quite a popular part of the ski experience. So Morse Mountain is definitely a beginner mountain, and it uh, it works well for beginner snowboarders as well as for skiers. And Sterling, as you point out. It has a number of features that people like that weren't necessarily there twenty, twenty-five years ago, or at least not officially. You know, we got some great glades on uh, Sterling, and I'm sure others are telling you gladed skiing has become very, very popular. Absolutely. So we uh, we've chosen to officially recognize glades and to manicure them differently. Than uh, maybe twenty years ago, when the skiers were in the woods, but the, but the terrain wasn't officially recognized as a uh, on the on the trail map. Uh, but now today, because we understood the popularity of those who want to ski in the woods was important, so we expanded that part of our terrain. And then Madonna's, you know, it's the classic big mountain. Uh, loved by all, and challenging, and uh, not all of it, though, you know, there's some of it that's quite intermediate, but it, uh, it's appreciated, it's, there was a time when I got here where people used to say, well, where are you going skiing today? The answer was Madonna, <laughs> not smugglers, they'd say, oh yeah, we're going to Madonna, <laughs> so, you know, it got that reputation, and we're it's one of those components of our business that we're just blessed to have, you know, three really interesting, great mountains for the market that we've chosen. And uh, you pointed out correctly that it's, it's a unique setup and there and we connect them. So you can go from the upper mountains, we call them Madonna and Sterling. You can ski right back to the village on to Morse and you can go to the top of Morse and ski over. To the other mountains.
1: Yeah, and I love that you brought up the glades, Bill, because I was going to ask you about those. I'm a big glade skier myself. It's my favorite type Uh, of skiing, and uh, I I think having all the natural snow that you do means you can build out a substantial glade plant. Is that an ongoing process? Are you planning to continue to clear more glades and mark them on the trail map, Or, or are you at a place where you feel like you have a good glade network and and that work's mostly done?
0: Um, if we have the opportunity to open up more glades, we will. One of the uh, important beliefs at smugglers, and we've followed this for an awful long time now, is that we we think it's important to be environmental stewards. I know everyone says that. But uh, gladed skiing is, has to be managed properly in order to preserve the woods correctly.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So if we're going to open up any new areas... We'll do it responsibly in a way that makes sure that the that the forest that we're skiing is well protected. Uh, because if you don't do that, over time, the forest will deteriorate. So the decision as to whether we will open up more glades is not only to expand the experience, but to make sure we do it in a way that's, you know, kind of responsible.
1: Mm-hmm. And do you think you're done cutting more trails? Because you have a huge footprint and there's huge... Uh, spans of woods, for example, between Morse and Madonna, that look from above as though they could be developed. That doesn't mean I know what, what's in the forest, cliffwise or whatever else. But uh, do you think your trail network—not uh, talking about glades, but the cut trails—is more or less set, or, or is there a is there a scenario where you
0: would consider cutting more? Well, probably all set in terms of volume of additions, but there'll always be you know onesies, twosies, where we decide that there's a good reason to have an additional trail in a particular area, but that's not where our focus will be. Uh, we, we lease, we're fortunate we lease a thousand acres of land from the state, much of it, very nice skiable terrain that's undeveloped. So, you know, the the day will come when we think that we've reached kind of a limit of growth, uh, and we'll want to develop that terrain and it's there. It's available Uh, it'll take a number of years to get through the environmental process to be able to access it and use it. And uh, we'll take investment in lifts, but that would be our long range plan would be to develop that area that's in our lease that we're not currently developed, as opposed to trying to expand significant expansions in the existing trail system.
1: So, is that area that you're referring to? Is that that area between Morse and Madonna, or or is there some other area you're referring to?
0: Yeah, if you're looking up Morse, it's on the. there's a bowl on the left hand side. As you get, as you know, we only go up halfway on Morse. Mm-hmm.
1: So, if
0: okay. you go to the top of Morse, you'll see a, a nice looking bowl on the uh, on the skier's right. Oh, nice. That's a potential for development.
1: Is that the same as the birthday bowls? It's not. Okay. It, I, those I've read about, I've never had the chance to ski them myself. Um, those are lift accessible off Sterling. Is there any chance that those could ever be brought into the resort footprint?
0: You know, I have not been a part of an internal discussion about that. So it's not in the short-term plan. So it may be, uh, may be longer term. But in all cases, you know, you've got to come back to the environmental issues. And the trade-offs, on whether or not it's it's um, makes sense to address the expansion of the trail system, uh, given the environmental constraints that may be there. And we we have a great environmental record at Smuggs. We were were considered to be a partner with the state. We're the only resort achieved that level. They don't award it anymore, but at the time. We were one of a few businesses in Vermont and the only resort that was considered to be an environmental partner because of our commitment.
1: Yeah, and it looks like you have a pretty substantial footprint at the moment. Anyway, there is one trail I want to talk about, Bill, that came on the map um, a few years after you purchased the resort and that's Black Hole, the only triple black diamond run in the Northeast. <sighs> uh, tell us about that trail and how it earned that ranking.
0: Um when you say, tell you about that trail, the first thing I can tell you is that I don't know much about the trail because I don't go on it. Okay. (laughs) And, uh, I think it was at that time, thinking back 20 years, uh, our, our view of our markets were not necessarily that mature at the time. And, uh, There was an opportunity, it came out of talking, yes, it always does, talking to our guests. Here was an opportunity because of that terrain uh, to be able to uh, open up a trail that would get that kind of rating. And I think the idea was that it would attract more skiers. And to my knowledge, it did not do that. Okay. Frankly. (laughs) Again, because what percentage of the skiing population can ski on triple black diamonds? Right, so it's there, and it's nice to have on the trail map. It is unique. It's kind of a uh, a wannabe trail. Okay, you now lots of people look at the map and they say, "Wow, I want I want to be able to ski that trail." Now it's a if the snow conditions are good, it's a great great trail for expert skiers, and it's a great trail for uh, our local skiers. But I would say that it. Uh, it's probably not that consistent with our family approach.
1: Hmm.
0: What but you can you... ski it when you're here. We'll let you <laughs> ski it.
1: Well, maybe, maybe I'll peek over the edge. Is there is there a mandatory cliff in there? Like what what is it that that makes this this sets this trail apart from the other double blacks on the mountain?
0: Well, if you look at the map, you'll see it's actually between two double black diamonds. Mm-hmm. So. It's the terrain that exists between the two double blacks that makes it a triple. And, and of course, if you look at the map, you'll see it's gladed. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it's it's a double black diamond that's gladed.
1: All right. Well, I'll I'll hope for the snowpack to be able to check it out myself when I'm there in, in January. Um, real quick you better before you come we... see me and tell
0: me what it's like,
1: <laughs> I absolutely will. <laughs> uh, before I let you go here, Bill, I just want to just want to catch up quick with you on. Last season in Vermont, Vermont had some very strict travel restrictions uh, that that kept a lot of folks who normally would have skied in Vermont uh, out of the state, particularly from Canada. And, and I don't know how important of a market Canada is for you being so far north. But just overall,
0: how was your season last year at Smuggler's Notch? Well, it was uh, surprisingly better than we expected. Okay. Here's That's what happened. Um, our Our drive market... And overnight market was about half of what we ordinarily would have, which was quite a decline. And that yeah. was because if people could come to Vermont, they couldn't leave Vermont because of the restrictions and requirements that you get tested or that you uh, that you stayed home uh, before leaving. So there were very difficult. You you almost had to isolate yourself for four weeks in order to be able to come here, two in and two out. Wow. So that didn't happen. However, the same thing was true of Vermonters; they couldn't leave. Right. So what did they do? Were they and suddenly people understood the great value of outdoor recreation. That you could uh, you could enjoy the the outdoor winter experience in Smugglers and other winter resorts, um, without for example, without having to wear a mask coming down the mountain. Mm-hmm. So our local uh, volumes went up significantly while the travel volumes went down. It wasn't quite a break even between the two, but it, it certainly enabled us to get through the winter uh, okay.
1: And did you have a lot of people living on site in the village for the winter, for the whole winter? Yeah, more than
0: uh, more than usual. people Homeowners. Uh, who do own homes here and typically would rent them out. Instead of renting them out, they just stayed here. And, that you know, because of all the, the capabilities of doing business online, they were able to uh, perform their business functions online while here and enjoy the recreational opportunities at the same time.
1: So... Looking at last season, I'm sure you had to turn your uh, your operation upside down, just like everyone in the ski industry did, and and just completely rethink everything, and and that was a big pain. But did you learn anything from COVID that you intend to keep around because you just found a better way of doing something when you were forced to rethink about it?
0: I would say there are two things stand out. Um, we, We had to adhere to what at the time was the state's requirements for what they called a comfortable carrying capacity. So we developed a very sophisticated model that we could run at any time we wanted. Typically, we would run it on Tuesday or Wednesday. And the model would forecast for us just how many people we could allow to buy tickets uh, for the weekend. And on a number of weekends, we had to limit the number of tickets that we could sell because the, the comfortable carrying capacity rules said we couldn't load uh, the number of people who'd like to come here. And particularly if you're, our lifts are doubles, so you're supposed to load your lifts at that time at 50%, that meant one person. Right. Unless they knew each other pretty well. And we had a lot of people who suddenly seemed to be a part of the same families. But, <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, but at any rate, um, so the comfortable compa- carrying capacity concerned us until we started getting feedback. And our customers loved it. And they were willing to pay full price and more to ski rather than paid at a discounted rate because the uncrowded experience was a great experience for them. So we're going to, we are continuing the comfortable carry capacity approach this winter. However, now we can load two people on a chair. So the capacity is going (laughs) to be up significantly, but that idea that people are willing to pay for you could call it an element of comfort, uh, is one that we learned from, and we're going to continue that this year as well.
1: There will be days then that you sell out of walk-up lift. Lifting. There will be.
0: Okay. Yeah, there will be. You know, and it, it, there's a lot of different things that can, that can affect that, including the number of lifts that you could run on any given day. So, but the other thing that also is fascinating, like many other businesses, Oh, let's say for the food takeout business, you know, when you drive up and you call the restaurant on your cell phone and they come out and they deliver your food to you. Yep. Well, we put that system in for our residential check-ins. Where you drive up and you call our guest service desk and a member of our guest service desk staff comes out to your car and checks you in. Nice. Guests loved it. Yeah, that sounds awesome. They just loved it. You know, yeah. I don't have to get out of my car or all my, my kids are... Here with me, I don't have to leave my kids. I, you come out, you would explain everything to me. I just sign, you know, and easily sign a piece of paper to explain where I can go, and off I go. And uh, we're continuing that. Uh, this we continued it this summer, and we're and we're going to continue it this winter. Hmm,
1: terrific. All right. Well, as we look to this season, anything new that guests can expect when they show up to Smuggler's Notch in a couple weeks?
0: Yeah. We uh, of course we've we've also we've continued to improve our snowmaking, and they can they can expect that. We didn't we didn't talk at all about some of the new features of the things that we we do in the village that we're continuing to enhance. We have, you know, one of the trade offs, one of the capital trade offs we made instead of putting in a new lift, we put in a twenty seven thousand square foot fund center for families. Oh, cool. And that, that's been, uh, even though it's only been there five years, it's being enhanced and upgraded again wow. uh, this coming year. Um, and we are, you know, we're expecting more. They'll see a little different face at Smuggler's because we are bringing international students Perfect. in to help with the, the staffing, like everyone else, there's a staffing, uh, the staffing shortage. So but mostly they're gonna find the uh, the traditional smugglers' notch heavily focused on a great family experience
1: tell me a little more about this fun center Bill because I'll be coming up with a five-year-old
0: Oh your five-year-old will <laughs> love it it's in multiple sections okay there's an, there's an arcade section uh, there's a section that we call the ozone that's mm-hmm. where your five-year-old will go okay bouncy bouncy houses oh. uh, little miniature stores, um, Oh, if you, if you had somebody a little old, oh, slides, you know, <laughs> uh, so that your five-year-old will love it. And then for you, and if you're, you're traveling with other adults, uh, we have an area of the, of the building It's called the Go Zone. Mm-hmm. And the Go Zone is uh, see-through climbing walls where you can challenge somebody on the other side of the wall and climb oh, cool. up with them. A ninja warrior course, mm-hmm. two courses mm. that were actually designed by the same people who designed the courses for the uh, for the TV programs, nice. the ninja warrior TV programs, um, and a um, a tall pole that we call it's kind of a trust pole. We have to trust yourself. Mm-hmm. You climb up thirty or forty feet. And go out on a narrow ledge and jump into what (laughs) (laughs) you're in the harness (laughs) you have to trust your harness okay (laughs) so if you get on our website you'll you'll see more of the uh, of the fun zone but you know it's just it's a classic example of the way we we think about providing the great experiences for families uh keep that ride down the hill, terrific, and keep the experience in the village at the high level and I think we won't uh we won't worry so much about what's going on around us
1: All right, well, I'll see how much courage I have left after I get done poking my head over the black hole all right, bill well, well you been- have to have a lot of courage
0: if you're coming up here with a five year old
1: <laughs> well, he'll be down in ski school, so oh, okay, um, yeah. Oh, you mean for the drive? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, luckily, he has a sister, thirteen-year-old sister, in the back seat to take care of him. Where,
0: where will you be coming from?
1: Uh, Brooklyn, New York.
0: Ah, yep, So
1: Making the trek. I'll have my wife with me as well. So we'll we'll keep it sane. Uh, we love coming up to Vermont in the winter. So. Um, well, Bill, I, I cannot thank you enough. Uh, it's a great pleasure to talk to you and, and, and get to know you a little bit. And uh, I really wish you the best with this winter. Hope we get I back to some semblance of normal and, and looking forward to getting up there and making some turns.
0: And make sure you come see me when you arrive.
1: I absolutely will, Bill. Thank you so much for your time.
0: You're welcome. Bye-bye. That's
1: Bill Stritzler, owner of Smuggler's Notch, Vermont. Bill, drop the goddamn mic and walk away. That was absolutely incredible. There are some very, very smart people running Vermont's range of amazing mountains. Trust me, at this point, I've interviewed most of them. And I can guarantee you that every single one of them looks up to you and wishes they could speak with your candor and bluntness. Smugs is special. And it's special in large part because of Bill. And whether he agrees with me or not, listening to that is the best case I can make for why large independent ski areas are vital to skiing's future. So thank you, Bill, very much for that. That was completely awesome. And thank you all for listening. How much do you want to buy a pass just to support that place? Smug skiers. Hit me up, what did you think? What do you think? Why do you stick with smugs instead of rolling epic? I sincerely wanna know. Lots and lots of good pods rolling your way. You know what else is coming your way? If you sign up, the free storm skiing newsletter, which you can subscribe to at stormskiing.com. Look, I'm not trying to sell you a timeshare put in your email address and you get my emails a few times a week and you open them and your life is better. Stop making me say this and go do it. Then go follow along with the storm on Twitter and or Instagram. You can also follow the storm on Facebook, though that is frankly a lot less valuable. Thank you all for listening. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester and I'll talk to you again very soon.
0: The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.